Hi, you're listening to another sermon from Deep Creek Anglican Church. Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Megan, and uh, let me add my welcome to Ben's to you this morning. I'm the senior minister here and part of an excellent team uh, that is uh, making this place a pretty fun place to be. I want to ask you a question as we begin. And my question is this, where do you go for sanctuary? You know, where's your happy place, a place where you feel relaxed, refreshed, safe, secure? Maybe it's a holiday spot. Heidi and I have been uh, dreaming about making Hamilton Island our sanctuary. But then you have to go quite regularly, I think. But, you know, give it a try. Yeah. Perhaps you've been working hard to make your home your sanctuary, which if any of the home improvement shows I've watched on Netflix uh, are right, it means you have to have uh, endless storage but open plan everything at the same time with a parent's retreat and a marble bath. For some of you, work is your sanctuary. You go there to experience order and calm from the chaos and maybe even conflict that is at home. Maybe your sanctuary is just a favourite cafe or a restaurant, a park, even a shopping centre. I mean, literally, that's why they design them the way they do, to help you forget about the outside world. Or maybe bed is your sanctuary. Did you... Consider church as your sanctuary? In the past, when someone was in danger or on the run, the church or a monastery was a formal sanctuary, somewhere they could go to find safety and protection and provision. We only really use the word like that today when speaking about animal sanctuaries a place where animals can be protected, particularly from loss of habitat, and get what they need. But the church was designed to be a sanctuary like that for all people. It was supposed to be a place where any and all of God's children could find a safe place to finally be able to be who they were created to be. When they were attacked by people who opposed them, they would find care and restoration, healing. Where there were people in need, they would be fed and housed. In the West, I think it's been really easy to lose this concept of what church should be because we have pretty comfortable lives, not all of us, but many of us, and not all of us, but many of us, haven't really had to give up very much to be part of the church. And the preciousness of the church doesn't really stand out in contrast to what we enjoy in the rest of society. But for those who've become Christians elsewhere, say in Iran or China, or who grew up in a heavily segregated or isolationist or conflicted society, 
not to mention those who actually need help putting food on the table, a church that really follows Jesus is a life-saving sanctuary. Even for me, as an eastern suburbs private school girl, I found sanctuary in the church when I became a Christian at age 14. In the midst of uh, teen angst and jostling for position and being one, you know, wondering, was I good enough? Where did I fit? In the church, I found a whole bunch of amazing people who wanted to invest in me, who loved me because God loved me and God loved them. And I found times of worship that just brought me a new joy and kind of realigned my purpose. And I found a whole new way of looking at the world as I learnt from the Bible and as I met Jesus. And when I struggled with life, as I continued to do, people prayed for me and I received God's power and his love. And I, reflecting on it, I think one of the reasons I became a minister was because I really wanted other people to have that experience of church as a sanctuary. The first letter to the Corinthians clearly teaches that church should be a sanctuary. In their context, it needed to be a place where the competitiveness and vindictiveness and preferential treatment found in their city had no place where the pursuit of worldly wisdom, spectacle and pleasure, as Ben so helpfully summarised the Corinthian culture last week, was just turned upside down in a community who worshipped a crucified and risen Messiah who was for them and is for us, Paul says, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Now that little verse at the end of chapter 1 gives us our first clue on what church as sanctuary really means. It is to be a place of welcome and refuge, but it also must be a place of righteousness, holiness, and redemption. It's actually right there in the word sanctuary. It comes from the Latin word sanctus, which means holy. A sanctuary must be sanctus. A church must be holy. You and I today, we put welcome and acceptance and inclusion as very high priorities, and rightly so. But Jesus says holiness is essential if a church is to be a sanctuary. So what is holiness? Well, if you're anything like me, you immediately think of strictness, judgmentalism, deprivation, a list of rules, things you can't do arbitrary morals that are sorely in need of updating. 
But holiness is not that in the Bible. Holiness literally means to be set apart. And for us, it means to have the character of God. But God is holy because he is set apart from his creation, even though he is at work in it. He is pure and loving, never evil, never selfish, never dishonest, never arrogant, never proud. God's holiness is this kind of multifaceted diamond of his goodness, truth, love, power, majesty, creativity, life-giving self. To me, too, God's holiness is the way that when he does stuff, it's surprising and confounding and yet effective and powerful because it's not at all how we would have done it. And when we see how it works out on a big scale or our own lives, we're so grateful for God's holy plans that they're his and not ours. It's exactly what Paul is talking about with a crucified Messiah. God's plans to bring salvation to the world through something that looked absolutely foolish was truly the most powerful moment. So God's holiness is how God is not tangled up in or changed by the mess of our world, and yet he is willing to be part of it and to save it. Two weeks ago, Chantelle uh, showed us in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17, that Paul calls the church in Corinth God's naos, the temple or sanctuary, same word, of the Holy Spirit. The God who is beautiful in his holiness has chosen to dwell in a temple not made by human hands, not with uh, beautiful stained glass and uh, perfectly polished brass, thank goodness, but in the life and community of a people made new in Jesus Christ. And so this temple or sanctuary must be holy. That doesn't mean perfect. You and I, whether we've been a Christian forever or whether we're still checking it out or whether we feel like we're sort of on the margins looking in, will never, ever finish with our need for the grace of God. We will never, ever outgrow our need of Jesus' forgiveness. We won't be perfect. But a holy church means a people who put their highest priority in having a holy God at the centre of what they do, who are living set apart for the purposes of God in the world. And although they're not perfect, although we're not perfect, they are growing in that same image of a holy God that I talked about with the diamond. Less evil, less selfish, less dishonest, less arrogant, less proud, more loving, more pure. 
But Paul also reveals that uh, certain things can destroy the holy temple of God, the sanctuary of the church. In chapters 1 to 4, this section that we've just finished, Paul talks about the disunity, infighting, factions, competition, arrogance and pride that threatened God's holy sanctuary of the church. And he says that that's a fearful thing because God does not take lightly threats to the place he's chosen to dwell. And so he ends the section in chapter 4 with a warning. He's going to send Timothy to the church in Corinth to help them to live rightly. And if they don't heed Timothy's correction, then when Paul comes, he won't come with gentleness. He'll come with a rod of discipline. So chapter 5 opens a new section in the letter where the question of not so much how the church is is, uh, treating each other, but the question of individuals' sinful behaviour comes into focus. Now, it does focus on sex, but it's not just sex, just in case you thought the church was obsessed with that particular topic. Chapter 5 is this transition between uh, the way that uh, the idea of holiness of the church and the holiness of the individual. And in chapter 5, we see how they affect the other. So in chapter 5, there's a new threat to the holiness of God's temple, or should I say there are two threats. There is the open, unrepentant, ongoing, unholy behaviour of one member of the church, but there is also the unholy ongoing response of the church to that behaviour. Both will stop the church from being a sanctuary. So uh, in verse 1, I don't think I've actually got that, I'll read that to you. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So once again, probably from Chloe's household, writing to Paul, he's in Ephesus, Uh, here is a report of one particular person's sexual immorality. The word for sexual immorality is porneia, where we get our uh, word pornography, and it's actually a word that's an umbrella term talking about all kinds of sexual uh, behaviour that is outside of the Bible's scope of what is right and good. What is happening in this situation is that either father and son are sleeping with the same person, same woman, or more likely uh, the father has died and the son is now sleeping with his stepmother, his father's widow. This is a pairing that was uh, explicitly forbidden in Jewish law. So in Leviticus 18.8 we read, do not have sexual relations with your father's wife, that would dishonour your father. But it was actually also completely, widely, roundly rejected in Roman society. That's what Paul means by uh, amongst the pagans. 
Many Roman writers also make note of this as something that was abhorrent or disgusting. I would say probably because of their understanding of the uh, pater familius, the kind of head of the household, and what that meant in terms of hierarchy. Paul is shocked by this person flaunting both Jewish and Roman moral standards, but he's even more shocked at the Corinthians' response. He writes, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? And I jump to verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul had expected more of the church that he founded. But the Corinthians, in the midst of sin, were proud and boasting. Now, they were already proud of how they were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And so possibly the pride is uh, them in their Christian victory. And Paul is saying, think again. You are nowhere near as amazing as you are uh, celebrating. But perhaps they were also proud of their ability to include someone living so rebelliously. Look how tolerant we are. Look how free we are. Look how above any of these uh, worldly institutions and rules we are. We see at the start of chapter 6 that they say, uh, there's a saying that they have, um, which is, everything is permissible to me. And so we wonder whether they believed that their freedom in Christ meant freedom from any boundaries. And so this was sort of boasting about how truly uninhibited they were. But commentators also suspect that this man was powerful or wealthy, meaning that the Corinthians were happy to turn a blind eye for the sake of maintaining the inclusion of someone who brought a lot of status to their community. I can definitely see that happening back then. We know they highly valued status uh, and patronage. But I can really see that happening today. When Kanye West released his Jesus is King album in 2019, Christians were falling over themselves to embrace him as this new sort of uh, leader in the Christian church. Not, I think, because he had shown that he had uh, a great depth of faith. Probably because he was famous. Worse than that, of course, even more horrifying, was the uh, willingness, I think, of certain Christian leaders in the US to overlook 
gross immorality in the background of uh, Donald Trump in order to align themselves with someone who could um, who could progress their interests. Paul takes this man's sin seriously, but he takes the apathy of the church even more seriously. Because they haven't said anything or done anything to stop it, they have put the holy temple of God under threat. The church is not just a collection of individuals, which is so hard. I don't, I don't know if we are ever going to be able to understand that because we have moved so far into individualistic rather than collective understandings of human life. But the church is the body of Christ, a tightly connected ecosystem. And what one part does impacts all the others. And Paul uses that picture, the body, uh, later on in this letter. But uh, he also uses another metaphor here. The church is a loaf or a lump of dough. (laughs) Body's probably nicer. And even if there is yeast in one part of it, leaven, it will work its way all through the dough so that every part rises. You can't have one bit of bread that's affected by the yeast. That's the whole point. It goes through the whole thing. Those of you who do the sourdough thing know that. Phoebe's been making some bread rolls at home, just um, using her own uh, recipe. And so they've had a lot of yeast in them, Um, (laughs) which means that they rise quickly, and so she doesn't have to leave it, but also has a particular flavour. They weren't actually that bad. The gluten-free ones were inedible, but the the other ones were were pretty good. Paul wants the church in Corinth to know that one person's sin is actually enough to change the whole flavour of the church. Maybe it'll lead to more sin. Maybe, as Paul says elsewhere, it will result in unanswered prayer. Maybe it'll just be that their mission in the world is completely ineffective when people look at them and go, you're no different, in fact, you're worse. Maybe, and this is in chapter 11, there'll be some sort of judgment from God experienced in the church in terms of weakness or sickness. And I have to say to you, I'm going to have to work really hard before we get to chapter 11 to understand what that means. But the apostle is deadly serious. The holiness of the church, the behaviour of its members, the response of each one of us to each other really matters. Now, I called this sermon Radical House Cleaning. And if you remember uh, at the start of this series, okay, if you went there, we talked about the church at Corinth being like a full and messy house where it had kind of immature people They had lots of toys to play with in the sense that the Holy Spirit had been poured out on them and there was fun things to do. But there was too much coming in from outside. They were far too influenced by what was going on in culture. Now here, Paul takes that idea of cleaning a house 
and takes us back into the homes of a Jewish family coming up to Passover. Now, I just grabbed this off the internet. Uh, it's um, sponsored by Sano because you know that if you want to clean your house before Passover, you should use Sano Spark Dish Soap, Sano Wonder Sponge Extra. doesn't work if you don't use that brand, I think, is the point. But... Coming up to Passover, which is around our Easter time, for Jewish families, if they're going to celebrate it properly, they need to do this habit of getting all the things that could possibly have any yeast or leaven in them out of the home because they're bringing themselves back to that night where the Israelites were in Egypt and God said, I'm going to do something tonight which will enable you to go free, but you need to be ready to move. So the bread that you bake must be unleavened. Maybe they could have taken Phoebe's recipe and just added a bunch of yeast so that it happened really quickly. But in this case, it was unleavened uh, and you needed to roast a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost because that would be the sign that God would pass over your house when the judgment came on Egypt for the death of the firstborn. So for a Jewish family coming into Passover, they have to check everywhere, including, and I love this, pockets, like, you know, the crumbs. I don't, I mean, none of you are in the habit of, like, keeping an actual biscuit in your pocket. I do like a bit of pocket biscuit or pocket chocolate. Backpacks, oh, you know, that lunch, along with the mouldy banana, you might find some bread in there, leavened, all kinds of things, right? Under the sinks, medicine cabinet, that's terrifying. So Paul takes the people in Corinth into this moment and he says, what I'm asking you to do is live the Passover life, keeping the church clean because it is the house that God has passed over because of the blood of Jesus. You are living in the eternal, unending celebration of the Passover of God. Jesus has been sacrificed and you are constantly under that sign as the people of God. So keep your house clean. So he pronounces a ruling. The person must be excluded from the church. It doesn't matter how charming, how powerful, how wealthy or famous they are. He says, when you are next gathered together in an official way, so he says, when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, this is not a social gathering, we don't like you anymore. This is not a, um, you're not part of us because there's something, you know, that you just don't fit in. This is an, an official church sanction that the man can no longer be part of this holy temple. He can't be present at the meals you have together as a church. He can no longer share Holy Communion. 
He can't be there to receive the teaching of the apostles and their delegates. Remember, he can't go home and read his Bible. That doesn't exist. Even the sermon part was precious. He can't share in the prophetic ministry. He'll no longer receive the special love reserved for brothers and sisters in Christ. He'll no longer be protected by the prayers of the community. When I was in high school, I had a boyfriend whose brother was addicted to heroin. I never met the brother, we'll call him Tom, uh, because he was in jail. He was in Pentridge, which shows you how old I am, uh, at the time of our uh, relationship. As is common for drug users, uh, Tom had turned to crime uh, to support his habit and uh, it had led, amongst other crimes, for him to uh, rob his own family's home. And so he'd broken in to my boyfriend's house and stolen money, goods, etc. And Tom's parents had turned him into the police and he went to jail. I'm not there yet, but I guess many parents have had to allow their children to experience some pretty hard things, hoping that the consequences of their actions will wake them up to the danger of what they're doing. Those hard choices are done out of love and a sincere desire that once the child experiences the loss of whatever it is, freedom, comforts of home, educational opportunities, that they'll see their actions in a new light and change their ways. Repentance and restoration is the goal. But I can imagine getting there is just unbearably hard. That is the sort of love that is being called for in 1 Corinthians 5. The sanctuary of the church has enabled a particular man to feel connected to God, to be in a new community of love and power. Being outside this sanctuary would mean effectively being on his own in a world hostile to God, without access to all the benefits, spiritual, emotional, physical, that come with being in the holy temple of God, in the people of God. He, like so many of us, had wanted the sanctuary without the sanctus. And now the sanctuary would be denied him until he felt its absence so keenly that he was willing to take a long, hard look at his life and ask whether a holy God was really at the centre of it. This is what it means when Paul says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Just like the story of the prodigal son, the rebellious child is allowed to follow the road of his or her rebellion out into a world which could rightly be called the kingdom of Satan. 
And when that road leads to ruin, the child has a choice to repent, to return and rejoin in humility the family and the kingdom of the father, or to stay in their pride and shame and pain and remain disconnected forever. The flesh here is not the physical body so that the person is being punished in some physical way. It is the sarks, the sinful nature that is in rebellion to God. And so the destruction of the flesh, the purpose of being outside is so that whatever hardship is experienced will bring this man to repentance. In the Old Testament, people living in opposition to the law of God, or people who were discovered to be living in, the, in opposition to the law of God, were expelled from the community. That's what Paul is quoting at the end of this chapter in uh, verse 13. This is from Deuteronomy 23. God will judge, expel the wicked person from among you. In the Old Testament, the idea was to maintain a tight identity of the people of God and community really trumped the needs of the individual. Restoration was not really in view because salvation was going to come to the world through the people of God and as the Messiah was born from them. But here it is different. Paul is saying that even if the wicked person is expelled from among you, it is for a purpose so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. There is an expectation that there will be repentance return, and restoration. So what does this mean for Deep Creek? This is like 2,000 years later almost, okay? It's a really different time. And there are churches on every street corner in Manningham, not everywhere in Melbourne, but like you can throw something and hit a church from here. I couldn't because I can't throw, but you might be able to. Well, like in Paul's time, our worship services are open meetings. So there are some Christian communities that only have worship with those they know. I don't know how they grow, um, but it's closed door. That wasn't the case in Corinth. Uh, we read in chapters 12 and 14 that there are people, outsiders, coming in amongst them. And so for us, we're the same. Anyone can attend our services. Questions are not asked about who they are, what they do. Welcome is extended to everyone. Differences in opinion and lifestyle are actually expected in the congregation. And I hope that sometimes when we speak, we are showing that expectation. No one has to get their life right before coming to learn about Jesus. As preachers are known to say, you don't have to clean yourself up before you take a bath. This is about coming as you are. 
Now, at Deep Creek, we hold our communion celebrations as part of our open services. Not every Christian church does that, and I'm not sure whether every early church gathering did that. Sometimes they might have, sometimes they were more in the context of a known closed meal. But so we do not restrict communion because it's not possible for us to know everybody's situation. But what we do, uh, what we try and do, is always give an introduction explaining that this is a meal for those who want to put their trust in Jesus Christ. And so we expect that a person is able to opt out. We want them to be comfortable to do that if that's what's right for them. However, as is just according to the law of the land, anyone who's behaving in a way that's purposefully purposefully disruptive, divisive or unsafe can, of course, be asked to leave. This is uh, not a public land. Where there is gross sin, and which in our society is is probably um, mostly we agree that child abuse would be the worst, this is a sin which is both rejected inside and outside the church. We actually already have some restrictions, which is part of legislation from uh, Victoria and also in the Anglican Church, something regarding uh, persons of concern, which is uh, a way of saying someone who is a convicted sex offender. For the safety and for the purity of the congregation, uh, those who are convicted sex offenders can only, if they wish to engage with a church, can only do so in very limited, restricted ways on an MOU, Memorandum of Understanding. And it is open to us that a person who is openly, unrepentantly involved in something clearly sinful, and we might say something that nobody can disagree on, could definitely be asked to abstain from communion or from coming to a gathering. I've not had to do that but that is something that is open to us. But really, what are the principles for us? How do we do sanctus at Deep Creek? Well, first of all, we expect people at church to take our choices and behaviour seriously, which is a bit terrifying, but we also expect them to take their own choices and behaviour seriously as well and possibly even first. We all are responsible for our own behaviour and we need to be in a relationship with others, those around us where that is open and clear and where we are willing to be in conversation about it so that we move toward holiness. Secondly, and you'll love this, don't make it all about sex because it's not. Actually, in this very chapter, Paul is using an example of sexual immorality, but for him it could be anything. Now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone, that is, expel from the community, who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, yeah, 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 Uh uh-oh, greedy, an idolater, 
putting anything in the place of worship rather than God. Slanderer, actually saying bad things about people, being cruel to people, uh, destroying people's reputation. A drunkard, not just someone who is addicted, but I think in this particular setting, um, someone who is abusive because of their uh, use of alcohol. Or a swindler, someone who is using whatever schemes they've got to get money from you. All of these are part of what Paul is expecting us to take seriously in our midst. Thirdly, we have and uphold a code of conduct for our leaders and ministry volunteers. This is kind of in the modern church where that area of discipline or restriction has landed in leadership. Those who are modelling the holiness of Christ are called to sign on to something that comes both from within Deep Creek and the Anglican Church at large. We have a 38-page document from the Anglican Church called Faithfulness in Service, and we have a code of conduct for our leaders, our volunteers. And it does touch on the issue of sexual relationships and sex outside of marriage, but it actually talks more about financial matters, being private with people's information, gossip, slander, misrepresentation, kindness, respect, honesty. Finally, uh, how we do sanctus, we know that every situation is treated as unique. People's lives are terribly complex. My journey towards change is long. Your journey towards change is long. What do you do if the woman who the son is sleeping with is dependent upon him for her income, home, provision? This is a long process of detangling and compassion. But none of it works if we are not a sanctuary. Ben and I know of people who've been asked to step down from ministry leadership positions and they've not been restored to the church. Because it's only when the church really feels like a refuge, where it is precious, where we encounter the holiness and goodness and beauty of God, that expulsion from it will want to draw us back. Any church that is wanting to exercise any sort of discipline needs to first ensure that they are a community that is a sanctuary for a world that is in need. We're going to share the Lord's Supper. And uh, this is a meal for you if you want to put your trust in Jesus. You are welcome 
to opt out. The little cups will be passed around and you do not have to take part. But this is a meal of grace and forgiveness of sanctuary. As we come to it, I want to pray a prayer for us. Chantelle's then going to uh, sing while we hand around the cups and then we'll pray and share the meal together. This is a prayer that comes from the Anglican service for Good Friday. We remember those events every time we take communion and they mean this for us as sanctuary. O merciful God, you have made all people and you hate nothing that you have made nor desire the death of sinners but rather that they should turn and live. Have mercy on all who have not known you or deny the faith of Christ crucified. Take from them all ignorance, hardness of heart and contempt of your word so fetch them home, blessed Lord, to your fold, that we may be made one flock under one shepherd, Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end.